0: Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Kevin Buskey, CEO and founder of Guideline, a 401k platform for small business that's raised $339 million in funding. Kevin, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, no problem. So I was looking at your LinkedIn, and I see that you'd started a company in 1996 called LinkedUp. So let's start there. Take us back to 1996. What was going on? 1996, yeah. Uh,
1: so I graduated high school in 1997. So this was actually the company that I formed in high school. And I really started this company in eighth grade, I would say. Um, I was building custom computers for local colleges and real estate offices. This is back when like you could get margin by going to computer shows and like slapping all that stuff together, really doing no testing whatsoever, but you could sell it to uh, this is back when, you know, like Gateway and Dell and like all of those types of things were like super fun, compact. So yeah, I was doing that for a while. And then I in 1996, I started getting into the services business. So this was voice over IP, Linux and Unix administration and building websites for real estate agents with like inventory and all that sort of stuff. So my mom was a real estate agent. So I saw the need there and I started doing that. And also like the prep for Y2K, if you guys remember that, and all okay. like that nastiness. So doing a lot of like BIOS upgrades and like all of those types of things. So this was that company, uh, which was great. And this is actually how I paid for my college. Yeah, that was kind of uh, what I had to do. And then I got quickly hired by a company called Iris Associates, which was Ray Ozzie's company, the developer of uh, Lotus Notes and Domino. And that was like 1998, but really kind of got into computers when I was 12-ish and then uh, heavily, heavily into computers, like in my basement type of into computers uh, when I was 14 or so. And where
0: did that draw for computers come
1: from? Yeah, you know, my father was a sergeant in the army. He worked in army intelligence. So he was running a computer lab. Eventually, when I got introduced on Fort Devens in Massachusetts, which doesn't exist anymore, I was brought up in the military. I was born in Fort Huachuca in Arizona, lived all over the world, you know, kind of following my dad's deployments around the globe. Uh, My mom was a stay-at-home mom and then became a real estate agent. But he really introduced me to them. I think I got my first computer when I was twelve. Packard Bell from way back in the day, from like Sears, which was you know it's a four eighty six SX, I think something like that. So he brought that home, and I really you know got heavily into this is before like the internet, any of that stuff. So it was accessible. We got into AOL, Prodigy, and all that stuff later. And then my cousin James, his father James was instrumental in the MIT Media Lab. And he really got me into it. He started another company called Man and Machine, which was around when, like, in the day, like, Apple stuff was happening. And and they were going at it. He ended up being a a great engineer and developed a bunch of other cool devices, like a Magic Mouse, which was essentially a pointer uh, for Panasonic back in the day. So he got me really involved in it as well, like, helped me replace my first hard drive. it was like forty megabytes or something. Uh, <laughs> super crazy, but yeah, those two I think really got me into computers. And then there was some hardship in my life. My brother passed away when I was very young, and that like really led me down into uh, getting deeply into computers in sort of unhealthy way, but uh, really kind of made me who I am today. And that is, uh, yeah, that's kind of
0: my uh, introduction into the computing scene. Nice. I love that. And to skip a little bit here, let's talk a little bit about TaskRabbit. So I'm an avid user, hung up a lot of TVs fixed some <laughs> toilets. You saved me from having to do a lot of physical labor with my hands. So I appreciate that. So you started that, what, was it 2008, I think I read?
1: Yeah, 2008. Uh, my wife at the time, Leah and I started that company back in Boston. I ended up staying in Boston for college after Fort Devens as well in high school in that area. So yeah, we started that company in 2008 out of need, which was great. You know, we had a big dog at the time and this is right around when the iPhone came out. So like Mm -hmm. mobile and all that stuff was starting to become really accessible and location data was accessible. So TaskRabbit ended up being something that it wasn't originally intended to be where you could sort of outsource all those jobs. It was really meant as like a convenience, like mobile and location awareness tool originally. But of course, you know, you kind of follow the money and, and like Wiccan's traction and it became like hanging TVs, assembling IKEA furniture, those types of things. But it wasn't, that wasn't its original intent. But yeah, then we we took uh, venture capital. I was still working in 2008 to 2010, just helping Leah with like server infrastructure and all that stuff. She was doing all the coding of the actual application this is like right when Ruby and Ruby on Rails came out. So it was all new. And I was kind of sorting that out with her. And then she pitched and, and we got funding in
0: 2010. Uh, and that's when we moved to the Bay Area. Wow. And I see that you were VP of technology there, obviously your CEO today. What was wow. that shift like for you? and And how have you made that evolution from VP of technology to CEO? Yeah.
1: So we made, it was interesting, right? Like 2008 in Boston, not really like a heavy tech scene, definitely not for consumer internet sort of uh, tech scene wasn't available or, you know, nobody really had that awareness in Boston. So when we moved, I held my job till 2010, till we got actually a like series A, I think, and I could take a salary. That's when I stopped working for other companies and then essentially I ran the platform and all of HR, which will lead me into like guidelines as, as well. But as a founder, you kind of just do what you're naturally good at, kind of just fill the void of whatever needs to be done, right? So you just take on all those jobs. The transition for me was pretty straightforward, to be honest, because I was an entrepreneur. I had started other companies previously. I wasn't, didn't have any management experience, but I think I understand people pretty well. Um, mm-hmm. I minored in sociology, which is the study of people. So had a good sense of sort of how to, and, and you know, I played a lot of sports as well and as captain and all that sort of stuff. So I, I think I naturally am able to lead in sort of an authentic way uh, mm-hmm. that people appreciate, at least from, you know, performance reviews and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I think um, pretty natural for me at that state at, for guideline anyway. Yeah, that's kind of uh, the transition. But at, at TaskRabbit, you know, ran the platform, ended up uh, having all of engineering on and off at TaskRabbit and then HR as well, which is kind of interesting. I'd obviously never done that before, but picking out employee benefits, including 401k, which I'm sure we'll get into. But yeah, that was that was my role there. And then 2015, Leah had gone to Sweden already, you know, and kind of struck that deal with Ikea. It was inevitable that it was going to happen. It just took a really, really long time to happen. But I knew I didn't want to work for IKEA in any sort of, no offense to IKEA, it's just I'm a technologist, and entrepreneur, and like I wasn't going to do it. So yeah, I knew that was going to happen. So I ended up starting this other company called Guideline in and around my experiences from TaskRabbit and running the HR uh, over there and picking 401k. And what was available to me at that time wasn't what I wanted for my employees, and I just started researching that and and, uh, really figured out that I could do a a better job than what was in market with an interesting sort of business model if we focused entirely on the participant and its outcome. So that's what I did. So myself and and my two co-founders, who are my great friends, Mike and Cabs, started Guideline. Actually, I started it technically first, had to raise some capital to be able to pay Mike and Cabs as well I could sustain my own self and, and Leah was obviously still working so we were fine from a monetary standpoint but Mike and Caz both had at least Mike had kids at the time and Caz was thinking about starting a family so obviously there's monetary
0: constraints there but it was interesting interesting time for us and I think everyone who's listening will have heard of Guideline but I think many may not know exactly what you do so could you just talk us through at a high level what the platform does Yeah absolutely so the void
1: we're kind of filling in the market is for the small and medium business. We're talking about, you know, from one employee in our largest company is 2000. So we're not, I would say like super small business anymore, although that's exactly where we started. And I think I saw that we'll get into that. So what we do is a small business 401k platform, turnkey, we integrate with your payroll, we take on all of the sort of fiduciary duties that comes with a 401k. So we're the record keeper. So we keep track of, you know, all the the buys and all the assets and all of the notices that are mandated to be sent out and all that sort of stuff. And we're governed by the IRS, the SEC, and the Department of Labor. So we have all three of them. So we have to keep track of a lot of different things. And that's really called our record keeping system. And then we're a 316 fiduciary. So that is plan administration. So we're responsible for all the plan administration. And then on top of that is what's called a, a 338. And that is where you're getting sort of your investment menu, uh, what investments are available and sort of suitability for your investors on the platform. So we do all of that as well. And then we end up delivering a product as well, right? So how does the end user actually interface with your product from a a planned sponsor, meaning the company that's signing up, but also as participants on the platform as well. So how do they how do you make them understand what they're investing in, how much to invest, you know, what the match is, like all of those types of things. So we do all of that in one sort of bundled solution. and we're really the first one in the market. Doing that from start to finish. Yeah, so that's guideline in a nutshell. And we've since expanded into IRAs, which are individual retirement accounts and SEP accounts, which are kind of for, you know, mom and pop shops that maybe have one or two employees.
0: So like handyman, pizza shops, those types of things. So I feel like conventional wisdom in Silicon Valley is you want to go enterprise. All the money is in enterprise. Stay away from from small business. You've taken a different approach here. So can you just talk us through that decision and why you decided to focus on the SMB market?
1: Yeah. So enterprise for 401k is really about assets, right? So if you have assets, meaning you've had a 401k for a long period of time, let's like an example, like Google, right? I don't even know what they have in their plan but it's an enormous amount of money probably a billion dollars i have no idea you compete with fidelity right so and that's where everybody ends up is on fidelity uh they have 30 plans and trillions of dollars so everybody ends up over there at fidelity so for a startup to come out of the gate right with two million dollars in seed stage like how am i going to compete with fidelity i'm going to go to google and say hey google trust us with your 401k it's just not going to happen right so You look at what's not available in the market. And for us, these are called startup plans, not to be confused with like Silicon Valley startups, but plans that didn't have 401k before are called startup plans. So these are companies that never have assets, right? And if you look at the legacy 401k ecosystem, most of the providers out there can't monetize you unless you have assets because they bill on assets under management. So for us, because we own the entire ecosystem, we're full-stack, we don't have to charge on assets. So we can actually focus, and this is what I meant earlier, we can focus on participant outcomes, getting participants to save more for retirement, and in the end, provide them with more assets when they actually retire. So that was our focus, and like us being able to deliver on that product with our full-stack solution, allows us to monetize small business in a way that's never been done. So we charge SaaS-based fees. So it's $8 per participant, not per employee. So you have 10 employees and maybe eight participate. You pay us on the eight. So it's, it's really nice for small businesses because they're only paying for the benefit for those that actually use the benefit. So that was really important to us as well. And then, you know, focused on that participant, we have an incredibly low eight basis points that we charge to participants. And this is really just, we don't generate a lot of revenue on this. This is just for us to cover transactional costs, like you want to take out a loan or you need a disbursement or something like that, where we have to pay our custodian to transfer assets around. Uh, That's a cost to us. So essentially we cover that with eight basis points. But yeah, there is a need in the marketplace and we built a solution and this was a solution for a company like TaskRabbit. And this is just kind of a problem that I saw in the market that nobody was delivering. I thought I could do a better job being a data person and software engineer with With Mike and Cabs. We're all in software. We're not in finance. Had an inclination that we could solve this with data. And that was kind of really like the precipice for like getting out there and in, in the market. And where could we go that we could get quick traction and an amazing product. And we really built this product after something that I wanted. And I've I've done that throughout my career, the same with Task grabbing, right? Like this is something that I wanted. And I think other people wanted it as well. And, and we just set out to build that. And luckily for us, like we were right. And we got product market fit, you know, day one,
0: which was great. Wow. Yeah. And I know you touched on it there a little bit, but let's talk about your regulatory pain. So what was that like in the early days? And it sounds like no one on your team comes from that background, right? So there was no one who was a CPA or whatever it would be that would even know how to manage all those different agencies. So yeah. where'd you guys learn how to do this? And what was it like in those early days? Was it just <laughs> painful? Yeah, it was just painful. And we started slow, right? Like we
1: didn't dive in and have a hundred customers overnight where we had to like do all these filings, right? You have to file a 5,500 at the end of the year, which is essentially like a tax return for a plan instead of a tax yeah. return for a person. So we, we did it slowly, but my first hire was a lawyer and that was like completely like flabbergasted my investors right like you brought in a lawyer this early but we needed we really needed some structure we needed to understand the regulations because you know just as much as we're a fintech company we're also a reg tech company right like regulation technology so we actually had to build against erisa which is the department of labor and like plans have to have certain attributes and you have to do certain things on a certain time period all of those types of things are super important. So we just had to know what we were building. And then it took us a year and a half to do it from that point forward. So it was super interesting. We joke all the time, like, had we known how much regulation there actually was, we probably would never have started this company. Um, <laughs> you know, you're two years in, you're a year and a half in before you even bring on a company and you've already built all this stuff, right? And it just keeps piling up from a record-keeping standpoint, from a 316 standpoint. And then there's a filings, the 5500 and all of this kind of stuff. But what we ended up doing was building this large moat that we didn't know we were building, but it became a moat for us. And it really, you know, people have to outsource all of this work. And we have built this all internally, which allows us to have this unique business model, which is kind of, you know,
0: just really interesting in the market for 401k. And can you talk us through landing your first couple of paying customers that weren't family or friends or investors or you know, anyone related to you? Let's talk through those first paying customers. What was that? No, like? that great. They, they become friends,
1: but they weren't, you know, we didn't really know them all that much when we started. But our first, mm-hmm. you know, true paying customer besides mm-hmm. Guideline itself was Plaid, mm-hmm. which was really wow. interesting. So we had a lot of connectivity, like obviously being in and around Silicon Valley, like I knew Zach. Mm-hmm. Uh, got introduced pretty early on to Zach through actually what we wanted to do was connect to individual bank accounts, right? So like, where do you go to do that? You go to Plaid. They didn't have what we wanted at the time for retirement accounts. They only had like bank accounts, cash accounts, checking accounts, savings accounts. So I went to them and uh, started telling them what I was building and what I wanted to do and connect to other retirement accounts because we were thinking of doing individual investment advice at the time. We don't do that now. But I wanted to understand like, how much did they have in Wealthfront? How much did they have in you know, Schwab or whatever it was? And they didn't have the ability to do that. And I was telling them what I was building, they're like, man, we really want this account. We really want this product that you're building. And this is 2000, I want to say this is 2016. And I was like, look, we don't have it yet. This is October. I want to say October. And they wanted it by the end of the year. So we're like, look, we're on it, but like putting somebody else on it right now is really tricky for us. We ended up doing it. We ended up really hustling, getting a product out the door. They signed up. That's November. We had to file a fifty five hundred later that year, which was just kind of crazy. We got contributions running, all of that type of stuff, and we're hand holding this product all the way through, right? Mm-hmm. Just make have sure the edge cases locked down, so we don't know how to do payroll reversals, none of that sort of stuff, right? So- <laughs> Luckily they were good sports and, and they signed up and it's kind of like pre beta at this point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they were our first paying customer, grew with us to four or five hundred employees, six hundred employees, and they ended up transitioning off. And we can talk about this later when they were going through that visa acquisition, yeah. top, right? Like this is why everybody goes to Fidelity, right? So <laughs> this is kind of that momentum. But they were an amazing partner. They're still a partner with us. We still use them uh love those guys. The great thing about engineers specifically fintech engineers is they're highly educated on on finance so a lot of great ideas just coming from their participants to guideline Some of them'll have it you know everybody wants like mega backdoor rock conversions, but like we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> one of those edge cases that, you know, 20 people want of the 600,000 people on our platform. So we haven't built that yet, but a lot of great stuff from having, you know, picking a wonderful first customer.
0: Nice. And something else we like to always ask about are near-death experiences. So I'm sure you see it in the media, but there's just a lot of entrepreneurship that gets glorified. And I think if an entrepreneur or a founder was, you know, researching your name, they'd be like, "Wow, look at this guy. He's got it figured out. You know, raising all this money, having successful companies, all of this stuff. It just looks so cool." But I think what often doesn't get told there is like the pain and the failure and, you know, all of that journey that happens to get to those successful headlines and successful stories. So, talk to us about some of those near-death experiences or just some of those very painful moments you experienced while building
1: yeah, I think, you know, for different folks, different startups, pain comes in many different ways. So at TaskRabbit, pain for us was like product market fit. Like mm-hmm. we were doing something nobody had ever done before. We developed a thing called service network, like explain that to somebody. It just didn't happen. This So that was really a tough spot, right? And then for a guideline, like we almost died before we started, quite honestly, because I'm trying to raise capital. We don't have a product. This is, you know, 2015. I'm coming off of TaskRabbit, which, you know, was an outcome, but it wasn't like a home run, right? Like we didn't sell it for a billion dollars or anything like that. So it was pretty difficult to raise capital. And luckily for me, like some of the early investors in Guideline gave me a nice seed, but that was six months into me trying to raise capital. Like that was a six months of no's. Until we got the pitch right, until we got the product focus right, all of that took a really long time. And Mike and Cabs couldn't join me, aka we couldn't start building product until I raised capital. So there is that catch-22 right there. It was a you know chicken and egg situation. So luckily, we ended up getting some capital. We did a $2 million seed round from, at the time it was called uh, LHV, Lear Hapu Ventures, now it's just called LH, and then NEA. Dana Grayson over there believed in what we were doing and gave us, you know, a shot at it. And then that allowed us to start building. And then once you start building a product and you see the types of people that are building the product, myself, Cabs, and Mike, and sort of the, the focus on experience, the focus on the craftsmanship of the product, it's much easier to tell that story. But quite honestly, like six months in... Mike and cabs are antsy. We're all ready to go. And I just can't raise the capital. I'm like, we almost called it at that point. And maybe, you know, it wasn't meant to be, or we needed somebody else to be able to do that. But I think that was the closest we had come to sort of dying before he started. After that, I would say we've been incredibly lucky. It's always been super positive up into the right product market fit day one. I know how lucky that is because it does not happen for the majority of startups. But we got really lucky. And I think we got lucky and we were really focused, meaning the co-founders and myself, on what we were going to deliver. And we had a lot of conviction that it was the right product. They were really excited about it. I was really excited about it. Everybody we talked to was like, this doesn't exist. Please make this. And I would say that was, you know, that's another quick lesson is like, don't do this like stealth Thing like just stop at that because like first mover advantage will work for a month. Like honestly, <laughs> really you can generate code these days. Like that's just not a thing. If that's your differentiation, it's not. It's not a differentiation. So tell everybody about it. Get all the feedback you can. Build a better product. That's going to differentiate you. Anyway, I'm still boxing there, so I'll
0: look. <laughs> now, if we switch gears a little bit, let's dive into some of the the go to market side of the the interview. So. First one is around category creation. How do you think about your market category? And is this a category creation play? Is it just redefining existing categories? Or what are your thoughts? I think, you know, from a
1: large macro sense, this is an existing category, right? It's called retirement. Uh, It's been around forever um, (laughs) in different ways and different methods to get there. But I would say we did create a category in the small business segment. Nobody... Was doing what we were doing early enough. They had pieces of it, sure. Some plans were designed for small businesses. There were some record keepers out there that would do it. Nobody really had the full 360 degree integration like we did. So we put it all together and just defined this new market segment where you can get a turnkey 401k for $8. Like that is true and true, like something that didn't exist previous. And now you see all the tailwinds with the state mandates for retirement. And if you have employees in California, now you need a, a retirement program. It was never that way before that happened last year. like So we were just kind of, you know, timing was right. And we developed this private market solution in a new category, retirement for small business, where
0: these features didn't exist for participants that worked for small business before. Now they do. And on the topic of timing, it doesn't really seem like just luck or an accident because with TaskRabbit, you nailed that timing, right? If you had done it three years before when the iPhone wasn't out or maybe GPS yeah. wasn't working as well, that wouldn't have worked as well. And it sounds like similar here where you just nailed timing. So what's think, your process for, you know, for doing that? How do, you, yeah. how do you nail it?
1: I'll say that we nailed timing for a guideline. Uh, mm-hmm. For TaskRabbit, I think we're actually too early. Uh, mm-hmm. if you look at the companies that came along later, they were smaller segments of what TaskRabbit did, like yep. Lyft, Uber, DoorDash, you know, all of those we did on TaskRabbit years before people focused on them as an individual product. Um uh, mm-hmm. so I think we're just too early there. We're trying to do too much too soon and really didn't focus on it. With Guideline, I think we absolutely nailed the timing. I think um, you know, the push from sort of mom and pop payroll into the cloud. So you're talking about like Zen Payroll actually became Gusto, Zen Mm -hmm. existed, all of those types of companies, you know, Intuit, Rippling, all of that stuff is starting to happen, right? So you need those companies to exist to do what we do. They have to be forward thinking, they have to be tech forward, they have to have APIs, all of that stuff had to exist. And then of course, like nobody had touched 401k for 40 years. And then all of a sudden we have legislation mandating retirement solutions. Like, I think that was lucky. (laughs) (laughs) But the rest of it was very, you know, we we were very intentional in building the product that we built. And that's why, you know, our go-to-market strategy was partnering with Gusto. And that's why we Mm -hmm. focused on the small business for the first two years. We didn't. a mutually exclusive relationship with Gusto for an entire year. Um, and that was really like, hey, we're both learning how to do this. Like nobody mm-hmm. had done it before. So that was really, really important and very smart go-to-market strategy by both of us, I think, Gusto and, and Guideline. We did a really, really good job there and just focused on
0: outcomes and user experience and all of those types of things. And what's the breakdown now when it comes to customer acquisition? What percentage comes from these partnerships like the one with Gusto versus direct? Yeah, 60% comes from a payroll partner. Um,
1: We have many at this point, 40% direct on our website. They sign up through our website. But in the end, 92% of all of our customers are on an integrated experience, right? So they have these 360 payroll connected experiences which are just quite honestly so much better and allows us to handle compliance issues and payroll reversals and census issues, all of that sort of stuff. So we can do that programmatically with code instead of with people, like legacy traditional 401k providers. So we can scale quite easily. You know, we have 41,000 or almost 41,000 small businesses on our platform and we're 360 people. He'll, wow. To give you some idea, Fidelity has 34,000 total plans. So we have more wow. than Fidelity and we're six, seven years old in the market.
0: Wow. And early on, was that the master plan? Was it to take this partnership route or did that come early in? hundred percent. This is a master plan. This is what we built our record
1: keeping solution for. Our integrations and that you know, you can outsource integrations now and people connect to HRISs and payroll and all that stuff. But it's what we do. It's our bread and butter. We know every C mm-hmm. of all these online forward-thinking payroll providers, which makes our integrations better than everybody else's. And that's true. And like that's something that we really pride ourselves on and the scalability of guideline compared to many others. It's just kind of different. But yeah, 401k is incredibly data intensive and there's a lot of compliance around it. There's a lot of things that people don't realize you have to do, like... You know, if you take funds from a customer and then you don't invest those within a certain period of window, certain window, like you have five to seven days in there, I forget which one it is, you know, you have to start paying them for market conditions. Like that's just crazy when you're thinking about 30 or $40 million in contributions every two weeks, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of money. So
0: it's a big deal on how we do things. And it kind of sets us apart. And if you reflect on that success and the growth that you've seen to have such a large customer base, what do you think you got right? I'm sure there's a long list of things you got right, but if we had to isolate, you know, one or two things, what would yeah. that be? How were you able to rise above the noise like this? Yeah, I think for us
1: and our mantra, and it's kind of held between myself and, and the co-founders is, is to do the hard thing first. And that was, mm-hmm. was so smart to build record keeping. As the very first thing we did, it it wasn't flashy. You couldn't see it. This is all backend, right? Like this is all stuff that nobody really knows that you're doing. You couldn't show an investor. Like how do you put you know a backend record keeping system on a on a pitch deck? It's pretty interesting to think about. But really, doing that set us apart for a very long time. And even today, you know, if you look back, there's you know threads and Hacker News and all this stuff. Like why are you reinventing the wheel? You can just use a census or matrix or whatever as a record keeper. It's a commodity type business. But what people really didn't understand was the value in the data and how that translated to an experience on the web or on your phone. Having sort of a commodity record keeper didn't allow you to differentiate on that experience because you were stuck with only looking at certain events that the record keeper would publish. So that was a big thing that we really got right and really set us apart. So there's other companies that started around the same time that were orders of magnitude larger than them. And it's really because of the acceleration that we're able to achieve based
0: on product experience and sort of these amazing integrations. Now, I want to switch gears and talk about funding. So as I mentioned there in the intro, $339 million, some serious money. So first question there is when you first became a unicorn can you take us back to like that day what did it feel like for you like what was going on inside your head and you can't give us like the bs answer like give us like the real answer you know what was that like for you
1: you know it, it definitely it, when i set out i wanted to build a billion dollar company so like for me like hey that little box on my shoulder like i checked it and i was really proud about that and i remember talking to the co-founders and like man guys we kind of did it here like this is a huge milestone for us in the end it becomes a valuation, right? Like we nobody thinks about that anymore. <laughs> like, it was kind of one of those things where you have that goal and you want to build a billion dollar company and like being able to say that and you know, my kids don't understand that now, but eventually they will. that'll be a cool, you know, experience for me. But other than that, it doesn't determine our success in any way. You know, we still have to pay the bills, we still have to do right by our customers and all that sort of stuff. But Huge achievement overall, like we we're really proud about it. it motivated the team a ton, right? Like people can start to see those magic things like options actually pay off and what they can become. It's really cool. And a lot of these folks have been working for me for 15 years, which is kind of crazy. Like I was just talking to one of my good friends. I won't name him because we joke about this all the time, but he literally started with me when he came out of college and I just had lunch with him at guideline and he's got gray hair. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) that was kind of a a cool moment uh, for me as well. But it's nice to be able to do this stuff for for the people that have worked for you for so long and the time and commitment and effort they put in. I was really, really, really proud of that.
0: And what do you do internally to maybe... Tame the ego a little bit, or you know, the confidence that comes. Because I've had a number of other unicorn founders come on, and and they say that's always a concern that they have, where you know, it almost can go to people's heads, and they start to celebrate before the job's done. Have you had to have yeah, any of those awesome. of discussions internally, and and how have you navigated that? Absolutely. I think one of the things that make Guideline great is like we have incredibly low egos across
1: the board, from executive team all the way through, is really important. But I think you have to celebrate the moment, right? Like you celebrate the funding round, you celebrate all of that stuff. And then you talk about what's next. And that is really about like, hey, this isn't our exit plan. You know, this is just a funding round. Nobody bought us for a billion dollars, right? Like that's not the same thing. So this isn't the end game. And really focusing on that participant being somewhat mission-driven, like we're all here because we want to make money and make a dent, right? Like- Mm -hmm make a dent in what we do, but it's not 100% mission, but it's definitely, you know, 50 to 60% mission on, on focusing on, you know, retirement outcomes for participants. So you got to have those conversations, but it's not like one and done. We have all hands every week, right? Like they need to hear it from me. They need to hear from the co-founders all the time. It's not, um, Hey, we made it because, you
0: know, we got funding or we have $300 million in the bank or whatever. And from all that fundraising, if you had to choose one lesson that you learned to share, what would that be? Like, what should founders know about fundraising as they enter at this type of level?
1: Yeah, I'm a big advocate for not over-engineering funding rounds. Um, hmm. Find that partner, find that amazing, you know, partner company or venture capital or private equity or find that partner. And really, like invest all you can into getting to know them. It was really difficult in COVID because we're doing everything remote. I and mean, that's when we did our biggest round with General Atlantic. It's really difficult to try to get to know some people that way, um, and then kind of align on values and in mission if they're on board with that. Uh, making sure that's really important, and then structure the round as simply as possible. Try not to get into you know preferences stack and like doing all this debt, and just like keep it straightforward so that you do right by your employees and your other shareholders as well. So I, I think those are those are my biggest takeaways. And then I would say, you know, this last year or two has been, I would say the last two years was incredibly difficult to be just kind of responsible in how you spend your money or, mm-hmm. you know, what valuation you raise at. To be honest, like we passed around the valued guideline at two and a half billion dollars. And I look back at that now and it's one of the smartest moves I've ever done as an entrepreneur was to pass on that round. I literally had a term sheet for $50 million at a two and a half billion dollar valuation and I passed. And I did that because I knew we could never grow into that valuation Mm -hmm. with the money that we were raising. So it didn't make sense, right? Like, and now if you look at all of those companies that raised on those huge valuations and they're out of cash. Like Yeah, what do they do now? <laughs> so it's really, it's I don't know if I was being intelligent or smart or lucky, but I'm really proud that we we actually didn't take that round because I think we'd be in a much different position. And now you know we're at the point where we're looking to be cash flow positive, and we could be if we wanted to be, and we still have 130 million dollars in the bank. So we're in wow. a really good position where we kind of control our own destiny. We don't have to take capital if we don't want to, just in a really, really good spot. And we'll be cash flow positive, you know, with 80, 85 million dollars in the bank. So we're gonna be in a really wow. good spot if this market turns and like IPO windows open and all of that sort of stuff. So I'm really proud of the company. We've made some hard choices and hard decisions as of late to put us in this position, but we've done it and everybody's rallied
0: around it think we're in a really good spot. You must be able to sleep at night much better than some of your peers who have founded unicorn companies over the last few years. And like you said, raised at these insane valuations with revenue that's not even close. I feel like they just have to be sweating like crazy right now. It's got to be so hard and I'm not putting
1: down, Like I understand the decision to, it's exciting to take those big valuations, right? Like I'm not saying you did anything wrong, but I do feel better about you know, being responsible with like our growth and and like the reality of growth and what that looks like and not just like drinking my own Kool-Aid here. So it's a tough position out there for many, many startup founders that have quite honestly have amazing businesses. And now like, they're being hamstrung by like a financing round. That's what I'm talking about. Like, keep it so simple, keep it as simple as possible uh when you raise funding. Um I think that's really a really smart thing to do, but it's it's a tough environment out there.
0: Hopefully it changes pretty soon. Yeah, it's brutal. All right. I know we're getting close to being up on time here. So we'll end with one final question. What's the big picture for guideline? What's the next three to five years going to look like?
1: Yeah. Three to five years, we have a lot of exciting things coming out this year, uh, which I'm I'm super Q3, Q4 is going to be a moment for guidelines. So I'm excited about it. But I would say overall, like we're still focused on one becoming a public company, not because of a, a fundraise or like raising capital or exits for anybody. It's really about building trust, specifically with this SVB and like First Republic and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Really don't want to be seen as like a Silicon Valley startup. That's not a good label mm-hmm. anymore. Like, especially when you're dealing with retirement and we manage like, nine, almost nine billion dollars in the market, right? So like wow. it's not a small amount of money. But you know, becoming public and being, being able to be really transparent about what the books look like, and these are all stories that you can't tell. Uh, nobody wants to hear them, right? Like, so being able to do that in a public setting and just people being able to see the health of guidelines, balance sheet, and, and PL and all that sort of stuff will be a really interesting moment. And I think that will take away sort of the fidelity narrative. I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, you can start with guideline and then you need to go to Fidelity eventually. Like, hopefully that disappears. So that's that's really our goal is to IPO at some point when that becomes available to us. But we're mm-hmm. structured and really focused on that. We're in our third year of financial audits with E&Y. So we're, we're getting there and we're setting up for that moment. But really for us, like we want to be the default retirement for every payroll provider on the planet. Like that's our goal. That's our goal whether it's a 401k or some other program that's what we're focused on and really that is like there shouldn't be a bad choice in my opinion for a retirement program through payroll and there are still plenty of bad choices and you're talking about high asset based fees that kind of rip the face off of participants and they don't even know it which is you know another reason that I started this company so I think you can do something where there's a win-win-win across the board and that's a win for the payroll company, win for guideline, and a win for the participant. I don't think it needs to be a winner and loser situation. So and right now in a legacy environment, I kind of feel like it's structured that way, kind of opaque. So we're trying to bring transparency to that. And if you choose to, you know, go with a product like guideline where you know what you're paying and you know what you're getting, I think we'll have a good we'll have a good outcome.
0: Amazing. I love it. All right, Kevin, we're up on time. So we're going to have to wrap. If people want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go?
1: Yeah, guideline.com. Very simple. We have a great blog there. We kind of announce everything that we're doing or any market moments or education. We're big on education. So you can go there. Personally, if you want to see anything that I'm doing, it's at Kevin Buskey on Instagram. I don't post much at all. Maybe like once every three months, but
0: that's the best I got for you as far as (laughs) follow Awesome. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and really share some of these lessons. This has been such a fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I know our audience is going to as well. So thank you Brett. for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Brett, appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.